Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wellspring Way. Now, I've really been looking forward to chatting to our latest guest. He's been absolutely fundamental in making Wellspring what it is today. He's a published author and a leading authority on the relational approach to behaviour management. He's a former executive principal of social, emotional and mental health needs special schools and alternative provision academies. He's Wellspring's director of learning and he believes in prioritising kindness in the classroom. Today, we're joined by the one and only Dave Whitaker. Dave, thanks for joining us. It's good to have you. Pleasure. So first thing, your book, The Kindness Principle. And I've got a copy in front of me and I just want to read some of the quotes on the back. Um, the kindness principle should be read in every school because above all, it teaches us that excellence and kindness are not mutually exclusive. We can and should strive to achieve both. And that's Fiona Miller, the education journalist. Between these covers, you'll find everything you need in order to become a school where teachers love to teach, learners love to learn, and where curiosity and empathy turn adversity into opportunity. That's Dr. Pookie Knightsmith, expert on child and adolescent mental health. So I think it's fair to say that it's been really well received. You must be chuffed with it. Yeah, to be fair, I am. I think it's always a surprise. It genuinely is a surprise when... Um, first of all, somebody asks you to, to write a book in the first place, so that's the first surprise. And then secondly, that somebody wants to buy, actually buy it and, and read it. And there's all, there's this massive um, imposter syndrome and self-doubt that you get when you... Um, I suppose it's not just when you write a book. It, a lot of people get imposter syndrome in jobs, don't they? But um, it took about five years to persuade me to even do it from um, Ian Gilbert, who's the publisher. And, and he, Ian had been pushing me and pushing me and pushing me and saying, look, Dave, you've got a lot to say... Um, I want you to write it in a book. And I sort of didn't believe that I had a lot to say until I eventually started to write it down. And then, you know, 46,000 words later, you realise you've got the content for a book. Uh, and, and the rest is history because what you've then got to do is go through all the process of it actually being published and then it's physically in your hand. And then you go, and that's the scary bit. I can the, imagine the really that scary. moment where you've actually oh, yeah. got tangible. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's both... It's both um, fantastic and also frightening and it's frightening because you realize that people are going to read it and comment about it yeah. and they're going to actually have an opinion and we all know what people's opinions are like in education it's it's polarized isn't it you know you've got you've got all sorts of people chipping in and and i suppose i wasn't paranoid but i knew that there could be some comeback to to my approach yeah. because it's uh, the approach that we have uh, across wellspring the um, the approach that we have through our positive regard and um, practitioners and team and we were big on relationships and we're big on, on, I suppose, kindness. And we also know that there are people out there that don't really believe that's the right way to do things. Yeah. And to be honest, if you think about it, kindness, when you actually analyse that, why would you not be kind? You know, why, why is it a thing? How that, on earth you know, would anyone yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. be comfortable with saying, actually, I'm anti-kindness? Yeah, exactly. So, so actually, the, the, the title of the book is quite disarming. Yeah. Because if you say that, look, this is a book about being kind to children, hmm, who's going to criticise it really? Um, so it is a scary moment, and it's a scary moment when, um, when you you know you go on Amazon and Ooh, your books on Amazon, yeah. and you think, right, okay, this is now real. It's in the real world, and you've got a book, and people can buy it. And every keyboard warrior can write a review. Oh yeah, yeah, and they do, and and that's what happens. Um, and you just, you know, you, you, you look, you look, and you sort of dread that one star review on Amazon, you know, somebody, <laughs> which, which there isn't, by the way, excellent, so which is great, which so far, yeah. but you know, somebody listening to this, the thing is with Amazon, somebody listening to this could say, right, okay, there isn't a one star review, 
well, I'll go and do one now then. Just because it literally is like that. So you, you expose yourself to that review process, even for people who haven't re- might not even read it, they can still go and, re- I guess- and review it. In today's world, kind of writing a book, you've got to have the thickest skin ever. Once upon a time, you know, you, all you'd be worried about was an official review in a magazine or something. Absolutely now, that. Everybody can take the two pen thing. Total exposure, isn't it? It, yeah. it, it really is exposure. Um, in, if, I, if, I, if I was to weigh it all up, it's one of the best things that I've ever done. Yeah. Because I just, it just, I just allowed myself to spend time writing. And if somebody had said to me 10 years ago, could you write a book? I'd have just laughed my head off. You know, what? write a book you're joking and and then you you sort of fast forward a few years and and you've got a book and it's you know then i've got people saying when's your next book i was just going to say is there no chance well you, you know never say never because i don't want anybody coming back to me in 10 years and said you you would never write a book but writing a book is all about authentic content for me and and actually some people can just churn out book after book after book because because Either there's brilliant writers, they've either got loads to say yeah. or they're sort of making it up. And one of the things that I, I in, in, in that book that I've written is pretty much all my career content. There's 25 years of career content stacked into that book. So yeah. I'm not waiting another 25 years to write another book. Yeah, because that's what I was going to say that I really enjoyed about it is that it's... Um, It'd be very easy to write one that was very theoretical or almost political, kind of pushing an approach, but it's not. It's all about your practical experience and how you can translate that into a classroom. Um, and some of the examples really bring it home because I know we talk a lot about unconditional positive regard in Wellspring, um, but I think it's those examples. Um, there was one, a boy called Liam, who he... Um, Got the windows really dirty when he had a bit of an incident, yeah. and it was it was the way that he um, he faced consequences for his actions, but in a way that was kind and supportive rather than punishment. And I found that really a really interesting example. Yeah, I suppose what I've tried to do in the book is 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 match theoretical principles to actual incidents that that have occurred in in sort of my. Um, career as, as as a teacher and all the way through to being a principal, and because sometimes people will say it's okay, Dave, that's not necessarily true, or that don't work. And my answer to that is, well, it is because because I've seen it work and, and I've done it myself. So, so when when you're actually writing the book, I was really conscious that um, that I had to tell stories. So what I did when I when I first, when you, the way that you know for all those people who, who don't know about writing a book, you start to write stuff and and then you send it to your publisher, your editor, sorry. And, and I, I, I think I wrote about 10,000 words and I, and I sent it off to um, my editor and he sent it back and said, that's all great, Dave, but I need to know more about you. So I want more Dave Whitaker in that book. So don't lose the 10,000, just add to them with, yeah. with stories and anecdotes that make, that make the thing come to life. Mm-hmm. So that what you're saying you need to do Prove it by by writing what you've um, you've done yourself, and that's all the book was. So it was a case of there's the ten thousand words. It now becomes forty six thousand words by by going over things that have actually happened that can be linked to either um, a theory or, or or a practice that that you, that you might see elsewhere. So that's all it is, really. It's always the best way to learn, isn't it? It's storytelling. If you tell, that's what it is. If you tell stories, 
brings things to life and people get it. And, and, that, and so the book is the book is essentially a collection of little stories about real life, either myself or people who I've worked with, and some of the things that we were involved in when working with really vulnerable and really challenging children yeah. um, in schools. And, and going right back to you know incidents that occurred to me even when I was a newly qualified teacher. You know, back in the in the first few years of my my teaching career, and what actually steered my thinking in it really early in my career, which probably pointed me in the route that I, I then took around working with special needs children, working in inclusion, working in alternative provision, and the sort of things that that I ended up doing for years and years and years as a leader. I was going to ask you that about kind of what um, sparked that philosophy. Was it was it there from the start that this is my this is my approach as a teacher, or was it something that grew over time? I think you always fall into things by accident and opportunity. In a teaching career, you always do. It depends which school you get your first job at. It depends the influences, the leadership influences, and the culture of the school that you um, that you fall into, or where you first start to be. I was lucky in a sense that I went to a my my first school was was a was a school you know secondary school sixteen hundred kids real comprehensive because it had some really really challenging kids it had some and it also had some kids that were sort of really middle class kids who, who just did as they're told all the time and did really well so it was that great experience of everything and but but culturally it was in a really good place so mm-hmm. so for me that was that start of where we were culturally you know we 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 spent um bearing in mind this was you know we're going we're going back um over 20 years we just didn't exclude children you know, the, the head teacher at the time said that's not what he wanted from the school. So we've got to work out different ways in um, in working to prevent children from being excluded. So this is mainstream secondary. And one of my first leadership jobs was was to work on um, behaviour policy and ways in which we could uh, prevent exclusions. And we introduced really early in, in the sort of big scheme of things, restorative approaches Right. Use of restorative language and restorative practice in school to the point where we had two years without a single fixed term exclusion for two years because we did other things. We used restorative practice and we just we wove it into the fabric of the school. That was quite forward thinking. Yeah, the, I mean, I can remember that, from my school absolutely. days that exclusion was you know absolutely quite common. But really. that, and that was a response to exclusion being common. Yeah. So exclusion was too high. We needed to do something different. I remember going on a on a course. Um, you know, he sent me on a course. It was a three-day course in restorative practice. Twenty years ago, you, you yeah, know, and and, and and so so ever since then, it changes your thinking and the way that you work. And so, what you do is you find yourself going into a pastoral system or into inclusion or special needs, and and before you know it, that's where your heart lies, and the rest is history because you move from there. Yeah. What do you think? What is it? The, is it the challenge? Is it that you can kind of, you feel like you're really having more of an impact? What was it that kind of drew you to that that side of teaching? I, I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't really know, apart from maybe it allows you to be less academic. You know, ah. you know maybe, maybe when you start working about relationships and working with the children on, on relationships and, uh, and really understanding the kids, you, you don't have to work so hard at being really good at geography. Fair. You know, so maybe I don't know, but 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 I think I think I I, I genuinely think it, you just you just find your niche, and you you find your niche, and you think actually I really enjoy this, so why would I change? Yeah. When, when I moved from mainstream education into into special education and alternative provision, that was a big risk, a, a sort of a personal risk because you feel like I don't know whether I can cut it in that mm. set those settings. 
And so you move not knowing whether you can cut it. But I was lucky because I got the opportunity to do a secondment as a leader, in leadership as a secondment. So, so try before you bite. So you try before you bite. It, the way I, I sort of describe it, it's a little bit like somebody can either chuck you into the middle if you into the middle of the swimming pool and you can't swim if and and to see whether you can swim yeah. or they can drop you near the edge so that if you can't swim you can grab the side yeah and and I got, I was lucky enough to be able to drop be dropped near the edge and if I and if I could swim I was going to be okay and if I couldn't I could always grab the side and climb out yeah. and and I didn't but as it happened I could swim and I didn't need to grab the side so I soon changed my secondment into a uh, into a permanent position and, and, and went from there. I've, I mean, I've spoken to quite a few teachers in um, Wellspring that are alternative provision or uh, special and once they've kind of made that jump and discovered that's their thing, they all say the same could never go back to mainstream yeah. now. They I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you see people who make that change and the, it's almost like they either leave after two weeks or they stay forever. Yeah. Because you very, very quickly realise if it's too much for you because it is highly demanding, it's emotionally draining, um, it's hugely challenging. But it's also highly rewarding in different ways than working in mainstream is. So it's just horses for courses. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I, I just I, I love going around the around the schools and seeing kind of all the different things that are going on. It's absolutely fascinating, and the strength of character that you see in the teachers that that deal with some of those challenges is phenomenal. Yeah, you, you know what you see? You see kindness. Yeah. You do, and, yeah. you, and you see it cutting through, and you, and you see that culture cutting through because you see those really, really powerful relationships between adult and children. The other thing that you also notice is really good relationships between adult and adult, yeah. because actually it's it's the whole lot. You know that unconditional positive regard thing, and that that empathy and acceptance and understanding and tolerance is actually it's, it just goes round and round. It's got to be adult to adult, adult to child, child to adult. Yeah. And that Do you think there's enough emphasis on? understanding those kind of things um, from a very early stage in, in teacher training. So, for instance, like understanding about adverse childhood experiences and that window of tolerance and all those kind of things that Wellspring teachers know inside out. Is there enough of that? No, I don't. There isn't. And, and the, the problem with anything is that initial initial teacher training and now early careers teaching is there's a curriculum involved in that and, it, and, it's, and it's packed. Yeah. You, you know, where, where do, what do you lose to, to in order to bring other things in? But I do genuinely believe there isn't enough emphasis placed on working with special needs children and also on behaviour. And the reason that's a challenge is because that that becomes one of the biggest problems for teachers in the in the first parts of their career. One of one of their one of the things that keeps them children keeps teachers awake at night is managing the behaviour of the children or working with the really complex special needs children they have in their class. But yet we don't do enough of that on teacher training. So, so actually, what they should be doing is sort of tracking back and saying, okay, what's the biggest challenge you've got as a teacher? Let's tackle that on initial teacher training. You know, I think, I think every teacher, and I would say this, I suppose, but I think every teacher at some t- stage during either their initial teacher training or their early career training should spend some time in a special school or an alternative provision. Whether it's a week or two weeks, there should be some way of doing that because it will, it, it will totally change the way you think in that short period of time. Yeah, it's, it's like anything else, isn't it? If you've not experienced it, if you've not got practice in, in, in dealing with certain things, then it's yeah. kind of like in the lion's den. Um, and then on top of that, obviously, you get all the um, the media. You know, we must be authoritarian and strong discipline and zero tolerance and all that stuff. Um, yeah. It, what do you say to people that, that come out with stuff like that? <laughs> Well, that's suitable for broadcast. Yeah, and, and, and it is. It, it's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating because what I know as well is that 
A lot of it is to do with what's easier. So if you're running a school, the easiest way to run a school is to have a really, really strict um, behaviour policy. And if that behaviour policy is broken, then essentially what you do is you punish the children. And if they if the punishment doesn't work, you just move them on and they go somewhere else. Yeah. So actually it's quite easy. Yeah. You, you, if the children then do exactly as they're told, there's a really clear set of rewards and they get rewards. Mm-hmm. So rewards and sanctions, dead easy. People talk about um, turning schools around and sorting schools out and um, failing schools really quickly. It's pretty easy if you do that. Yeah. If you then say, if you tell yourself, actually, that's not what we're going to do, and what we're not going to do is kick the kids out, and we're going to work with them, and we're going to understand them, that's a lot harder. So therefore, it needs a little bit more determination, and a little bit more sophistication, and a little bit more understanding. And and so, if you if the chips are down, and you're not feeling brave as a leader, and you've got pending Ofsted, and um, you've got people on your back because standards aren't high enough. Are you going to choose the long road or are you going to choose the short road? And there's too many people choosing the short road. So what it does is it actually factors in lots of things around school life. So things like funding, Ofsted, yeah. you know, the pressures that, that I, I, I have got every bit of empathy for, for every head, head teacher who's working in a school and trying to improve standards. Yeah. Because what they're trying to do, there's no, I'm going to stick my neck out and say there's no head teacher in a school who doesn't care about children. It's just what they what they see as being the priorities and how they see those priorities playing out, and also the sophistication in their approach. Yeah. So, so what they what they do is when they've got high exclusions, they truly believe that that's the way to sort out the school. The problem is there's, there's unintended consequences and collateral damage there that they either choose to ignore, or they don't feel are real, or, or they think are somebody else's problem. And and it's a combination of that. But if you're a head teacher who's got a mortgage to pay and a family to look after and you've got Ofsted breathing over your neck and you've got a school that needs changing quickly because you'll probably get sacked if it isn't, then what you need to do is hit them hard, get the kids out who are causing your problems and have a really strict, rigid approach to behaviour because actually you're saving your own skin. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting in the book where you talk about um, seeing exclusion as a failure and I think that kind of reframing would be really useful. So at the moment, you know, there's maybe head teachers that are seeing poor Ofsted or attendance figures or results as failure rather rather and the solution is exclusions whereas actually exclusions is a failure all of its own yeah and it's not even a failure that's linked to anybody in particular or, or personal failure I think that I think one of the things I talk about in the book is how do we genuinely judge successful schools and, and should we not have within successful schools should should be judged on how inclusive they are and successful they are with certain children rather than how quickly they deal with them, get rid of them. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, and I do know, and, you know, credit where credit's due, head teachers generally want to do the best by the children. And I've done a lot of work and we've done a lot of work through our Positive Regard team with, with head teachers who've said, can you help us not exclude children? Because we don't want to, but we don't know what to do instead. Yeah. So what you've got to find is that balance where you, from the from a cold outside view, you might see a school that's got really high exclusions. When you scratch below the surface, it's because they don't know what to do and they're left with no option. And actually what they're doing is they're crying out for some support and some help in to do something different to stop those exclusions happening. Now, they're the sort of people who we want to work with. Yeah. You know, we, we want to work with people who don't want to exclude. And even if their exclusions are high, it's because they, they feel like they need some help to change that and they need to change their approach. If they've got high exclusions and they're proud of that, 
that's a slightly different approach to work with than where we are. So we want to see and work and work with those those schools that want it to be different. Do you think there's a, a move now? Do you, can you sense a move kind of in the sector away from that very very strict um, ideology that we yeah, have had in? The I think there's an appetite for it. You know, we. we um, I'm talking again about positive regard and the work we do with positive regard. We're working across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we're working with lots of schools and lots of leaders and lots of teachers and lots of staff on how to do things differently so that we don't have to continually turn to exclusions. So there's an appetite for it. But then, like anything in education, on the flip side of that, there's also other schools that are saying, enough is enough. We've just got to, this is what we need to do in schools. We need to have a really strict approach. We need to have um, zero tolerance. We need to have no excuses. Um, and, you know, this is what we need to do with children. You know, and, and sometimes they'll say, because that's what, it's like a life lesson. We need to ch- teach children that this is what life's about. Mm, I tend to disagree with that. Life isn't really like that. Do we want life to be do, like and that? Do we want life to be like that? You know, so so it's like anything, isn't it? It's, it's polarised opinions. Uh, there's a, a, sp- a spectrum of approaches. And what we do is we work and occupy a certain area of that spectrum. But what we do is we encourage other people to be part of it. And if you want to be part of it, we'll help you get there. That's what we're all about. Yeah, and that that ethos is really strong, isn't it? Now in Wellspring, it's really well, huge, well known, well understood that that's that's what Wellspring's about. Yeah. And I guess if you don't buy into that, then you don't kind of. It's, I suppose it's like anything. It's about a values match. Yeah. It's whether whether it's a relationship, whether it's a partnership, whether it's a team. You, you, for it to be successful, successful, there has to be a values match, and schools are the same. You know, for schools to work in partnership with each other within an academy trust, for example, or, or some sort of confederation of schools, there has to be a values match. And if there isn't a values match, then it's never going to be successful because you're going to be conflicting all the time. And what we've done over the years with Wellspring is we've we've taken one school to 28 schools, but at every step along the way, there's been a, there's a conversation about values and what we believe in. So schools don't want to join us unless they believe in the values and actually we don't want schools to join us if they don't yeah so so there becomes a harmony a natural harmony that develops now some of the schools that we've taken have had no values because they're just in in they've been in very difficult positions Mm -hmm. but but that has allowed us to build the values in those schools and align them with the rest of the trust so it works if you think about it and you're thorough and and you get that those conversations, those early conversations in there about culture and values and what that means. Yeah, and that's why the whole idea of community works, isn't it, with Wellspring? Yeah. Because, yeah, we're all... Yeah, it, it, yeah, and that's what you've got to encourage. Singing from the same yeah. hymn sheet. Um, bit of a change of tack now. Bit of a quick fire round. <laughs> Just to find out a little bit more about your own school days. Two choices, dead easy. Exams or coursework? Well, exams so that I can do no work for ages and then just try and get through it in one hour. <laughs> History or geography? I've already well, mentioned not geography. Well, I was a geography teacher, so I've got to say geography. <laughs> um, school play or school sports day? Good question. Um, as my, in, my old, in my own school, and this is, this is interesting, I said sports day in my own school, but as a teacher, absolutely loved school, the school play and, the, and, and everything involved in the school play. I loved it. Yeah. Um, summer term or Christmas term? Summer. Outdoor or indoor playtime? Outdoor. Chemistry or physics? Neither. No, uh, physics. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm saying physics because um, I did I did O-level physics, so that tells you how old I am. Yeah. And I, I, um, I that was probably one of my best um, um, O-levels, but, but somebody told me that A-level physics was really, really hard, Yeah. so I didn't do it at A-level. Yeah. Because there was no way I was going to do it if it was really hard. <laughs> yeah, I remember from that. <laughs> oh, you don't want to do chemistry, you don't want to do physics, yeah, don't do hard. maths. 
And I'm sorry to, if anybody's listening who has aspirant um, <laughs> to do um, aspir- has aspirations to do physics. It's it's probably a great course. Yeah, brilliant. And we need we need more physicists. Yeah, I'm sure we do. We do. Um, and finally, to finish off the question that we ask all of our guests, if I gave you a magic wand and you could change anything, no, you know, fa- no financial constraints, no practical constraints, one thing that you could change to make the education system in the UK better, what would you pick? I'd scrap Ofsted tomorrow. Fair enough. I think I think you'd get a lot of buy-in on that one. There you go, a bit harsh. But, but <laughs> I would do do something different, and, I, and I'm not I'm not saying that we we shouldn't be accountable um, and we shouldn't be regulated. I just think um, Ofsted is flawed and it's not fit for purpose. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you'd find a lot of support with that one. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Dave. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to you, the listener. Next time we'll be talking to Luke Mitchell about his work around positive regard and how he helps schools to put the kindness principle ethos into action. Hope you'll be able to join us then.